We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. In the following spring, there was two of us rookies that were going to fight it out for the starting left field job. Me and this fella from Denora, Pennsylvania, who threw left and batted like he was yeah. peeking around the corner. Stan Musial. Stan the man. Yeah. He had a prettier oh. swing than me, but I hit the ball harder and batted both ways. Would have been a great fight. Thank you, Godly. Wish I'd been there for it. Why weren't you? Ah, the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor, the fuckers. Like an asshole, I joined the Marines. I took so much shrapnel at Guadalcanal, they were going to amputate my leg till I talked them out of it. By 46, my career was down the tubes. All I can tell you, Weeks, is to learn a goddamn trade. I never made a kid. But I would have. Goddamn it, I would have. All right, welcome back to Big Screen Sports, the podcast breaking down the on-field action in your favorite sports movies. Brought to you by the Blue Wire Sports Podcast Network. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. After last week's long intro, I'm going to try to be quicker here. This week's episode is one I'm excited about. It's on the best baseball movie you've never heard of, the 87 HBO TV movie Long Gone. I can say that because you can't find it anywhere but YouTube or the VHS copy on eBay. I hadn't even heard of it until recently. I saw it mentioned in a tweet by today's guest. Today's guest is NBC Sports baseball writer Craig Calcaterra. I've long followed and admired Craig's work. I was pumped to get him on the podcast. Uh, It was was a pretty cool moment for me personally, and Craig was an awesome guest. Uh, Great guest about this movie, and uh, really looking forward to you guys listening to this one and letting me know what you think. Reminder about upcoming programming notes. Starting in December, we've got DCOM December. That's Disney Channel Original Movies. Remember, we're doing Brink with Blue Wire podcast host Meredith Kane, Johnny Tsunami with my buddy Will DeFreeze, Double Teamed with comedic author Sarah Hunt, and we're rounding out with High School Musical with Mike Schubert, who hosts the Incredible Pirates podcast. Had him on a couple months ago to do uh, talk about Quidditch. So uh, definitely check that out. If you haven't yet and you're enjoying this podcast, please take the finite second to leave a rating, maybe a review. Let me know what you think of this podcast. I'll read out all the new five-star reviews each one I get. Uh, just note that sometimes we record things, you know, a little little earlier than they're actually released. Uh, you know, I recorded an episode uh, today 
which is uh, November 15th. It probably won't be out until the middle of December. So just something to keep in mind if I don't read your review. I will absolutely get to it the next time that uh, that I read out those five-star reviews. But I always appreciate those. They help grow the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at big underscore screen sport. Instagram at Big Screen Sports Pod, and you can join our group on the Flick app with a code Big Screen Sports. We're always in there talking about sports movies. With that, let's get to Long Gone with Craig Calcaterra. All right, my guest for tonight's episode, he's an NBC Sports baseball writer, Craig Calcaterra. Craig, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Of course, I'm I'm excited to talk about this movie that I, I only recently discovered. But before we get going, uh, where can the people follow you and see your work? Uh, you can see all my baseball work at NBCSports.com. I am the baseball guy, so if you click the little MLB there, everything there is basically me or my minions who work for me. Um, I also write about non-baseball things at CraigCalcaterra.com, but no one cares about that. I'm just musing and riffing over there. Well, you're one of my favorite baseball Twitter follows, and it's from your Twitter account that I recently discovered. I was uh, I was actually looking for someone to cover Eight Men Out, and so I just kind of oh. searched it and saw was looking for what baseball writers uh, had ever tweeted about it. And you had a list of your favorite baseball movies, and one of them was Long Gone. I had never heard of Long Gone, and I'm like I'm a deep baseball fan. I'm obviously a big sports movie fan. Never heard of it. Long Gone is the 1987 HBO TV made-for-TV baseball movie. It is the story of the Tampico Stogies, incredible name, a low minor league baseball team in the Class D Gulf Coast League, and its star player and manager Stud Cantrell as they battle for the league championship amidst the corruption and racism of the American South. Directed by Martin Davidson, starred William Peterson, Virginia Madsen, and Dermot Mulroney, and was based on Paul Hemphill's 1979 book of the same name. Uh, Craig, what was your experience with this movie when you you told me before we started recording you saw it on you know you actually saw it when it came out? What was your what was your initial impression of the movie? Um, initially blown away. I mean, I look. This is 1987. I was 13, almost 14, when this came out in I think May of 1987. And I was consuming everything baseball you could possibly imagine at that point in my life. And I'm watching HBO and they're doing these promos for this movie coming up. And they have a couple of like quick cuts of, you know, a 1950s period piece baseball. And uh, I was like, wow, that looks good. And so it was appointment viewing for me. And I made a point to watch it when it came out. And um, back then HBO, well, they maybe still do. I don't know. HBO would, you know, show everything 12 times. And so I think I watched it three, four, five times in the month after it came out, and I was completely blown away. And there were a couple things going on with this that that helped that. One, it's that, you know, I thought it did baseball well. Uh, it was an interesting movie. You know, I was 13, and it had some gratuitous nudity, so that helped, it too. It sure did. Uh, it I sure mean, did. Virginia Madsen, God bless her, it was, it was an amazing movie from that perspective alone. But um, for the most part, I liked it because it might have been the first sports movie that I remember, or that I cared about anyway. I'm sure there were others. Um, that really truly dealt with like, you know, sort of adult kind of issues in a way that to me anyway, seemed important and seemed, seemed serious. Um, even though there was a lot of humor in the movie too. I mean, I'd seen the bad news bears, but the bad news bears in some ways is a lot broader. It's about a misanthropic adult and dealing with kids. And I was a kid. So I identified with that. Um, you know, Bull Durham hadn't come out yet. Uh, you know, Field of Dreams hadn't come out yet. A lot of movies hadn't come out yet. You know, The Natural had been out. I saw The Natural, but that was like on this weird cosmic level that at the time I didn't appreciate yet. 
Um, so there was this, this very accessible baseball movie that seemed to do baseball well, gave me a little bit of illicit adult crap that I shouldn't have been watching, and uh, was funny, was good. And I was like, wow, this is, this is deeper than I expected. So I loved it, and I watched it. And then, of course, as we'll, we'll talk about, it completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah, and only to be found now on eBay and YouTube, which I, I found it on the latter. Uh, before we go go in for our deep dive, for you, what makes a good sports movie? Um, primarily, it has to be not about sports. That's I know that's weird. Um, people, you know, like sports and they want their sports movies to be sporty. But for me, um, the way I deal with baseball when I write about baseball is baseball is a pastime, baseball is an entertainment, baseball is a diversion. I have made it my life, but it is not life. And um, to the extent I get weary and unhappy with baseball fans or sports fans in general or people who comment on sports, it's when people think that it is the entire world and nothing else matters. That's the wrong way to view sports, in my view, anyway. Um, I think that baseball comments on life, sports comment on life, and they enhance life, but they aren't life. So when I see a sports movie where in the internal logic of the movie, in the universe of the movie, nothing matters more than the big game, nothing matters more than how we deal with sports, it's a little lacking for me. I, I like to see sports movies where the characters involved are involved in the world of sports, but there's there are other things going on. And um, when people ask me what my favorite baseball movie is, I've, I've pretty much always said Bull Durham. And, you know, the whole point of Bull Durham, as we know, is it's about people who are, you know, some people who are just getting into it at the early part, some people who are at the end of their line in it and trying to find some purpose and meaning in life outside of sports. Um, that's the stuff I like, where where you figure out how this thing fits in your life. And um, so, so for me, a good sports movie, in addition to all the other reasons why a movie has to be good, it has to have good characters, has to have actors who do well, like anything else, um, a sports movie has to have that sense that sports is maybe just sort of this sort of allegorical or, or parallel life to the characters involved, and they are trying to figure out how they fit in it and how it fits in their lives. Well, kind of like you said earlier, this one isn't, it's a period piece. It's You're watching, it's just a glimpse, it's just a brief glimpse into low minor league baseball in the 1950s, um, and it's, you can see it's unlike anything that's come before it, and you can see it's got its mark on Bull Durham, it has shades of the natural, it's got its mark on Major League, it, it, it is, um, it is, it was just a really good, it's just a really good movie, there's no other way I can say it. For you, is it a Hall of Fame, all-star, starter, or bench-warmer sports movie? It is, without question, an all-star movie. Um, I, I go back and forth to how much, you know, over the years, since since I went decades without seeing it again, in my mind, I was thinking, well, maybe it's a Hall of Fame movie. Maybe it's the best thing ever. And, you know, preparing for, for this podcast, um, I watched it again, and I, I tried to be as critical as I can and try to, like, you know, banish all the nostalgia that I have for it and for that time in my life when I watched it out of my head. Um, there are some flaws to it. I'm not going to pretend it's a perfect movie, um, but it is It is near there. I mean, there, sports movies can be terrible. There are way more bad sports movies than great sports movies, and uh, this one is one of the better ones. So I give it a, a definite all-star, and if I'm being a little generous, I, I might say it, uh, it's, a, it's a, like a seventh ballot Hall of Fame, maybe uh, going to the Veterans Committee Hall of Fame movie. 
Yeah, I would say it's like a perennial all star that throws that it, it just it throws heat at times. It has it has like nine or ten more seasons. It's um, a Brett Saberhagen movie, is what it I is. was gonna say. I was gonna say Johan Santana just because he's he's my guy who I will be like champion like championing for the for the veterans ballot. Yes, uh, whenever he comes on. But it's someone who it, it's it, this movie is elite at times. It's very good, and it's very disappointing that the only place to really watch it now is on YouTube. Uh, the only place oh, where yeah. you can you can think about watching it and put it right on. Um, other than that, you have to buy a VHS or a sketchy DVD off eBay, which I think I am going to order the VHS because my <laughs> first viewing experience, seeing it in on YouTube is just not the same. I, I think even seeing it on VHS would be, would be better. I would love to give it another watch, but th- this one is an all-star, but um, HBO lost the rights to this one in 2004. I'm not entirely sure who has the rights. Uh, we both read an article uh, by Steve Persall in the Tampa Bay times. I'm going to link it in the show notes. That has a lot of detail about this movie, um, about the filming, but it's just a damn shame that you can't stream it. Yeah, it's funny. The first time I watched it was on a 19-inch Zenith TV in my bedroom um, that was like the hand-me-down TV to me after my parents got done with it. So you you know that this, the quality was not good, but you also know that until you saw HDTV, you had no idea what you were you were you know missing, and you can't go back. But at the time, I thought it looked great. I thought the cinematography was great, and it is. I mean, they did a great job as far as production quality goes with this. Um you know, one thing that's that's just endemic with any period piece, I'd say up until like the 90s at least, is how shoddy um, most productions did with it. Um, you, know, it you know, the go-to is like Happy Days or whatever, but you see anything that tries to go back to the 50s, 60s or whatever, you've got, you know, blow-dried 70s and 80s haircuts, you've got um, wrong decisions with costuming, you've got um, a, a lot of bad just sort of you know, production values that, that take you out of the, uh, the period stuff that, you know, if it wasn't a high quality production, like Gone with the Wind or something, they didn't do a good job. Um, but this one does a, a fantastic job. I mean, the uniforms, the, the grit, the, just everything in the movie um, is a perfect 1950s thing. There's one one exception I have for that. I'll get to that in a minute. But um, almost everything in the movie is is great and it's a shame that you know we could only see it on YouTube, um, because I think this movie would look fantastic if you could do it in a sixteen nine uh, you know aspect ratio now and 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 just have it look great on a big screen. Oh, um, absolutely! I mean, the fifties vibes it, it it just feels like you're right there and and just nineteen fifties low minor league baseball. The I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the lack of accessibility in seeing the film is the reason why it is not heralded up there with like a bull derm especially i mean there it, it's hard not to, we'll probably mention bull derm a few times it's just hard not to they came out and i think in back-to-back years or bull derm might have come mm-hmm. out two years later um they're, they're just very similar similar kind of vibes but i this one deserves to be maybe not at, quite as i think bull derm for me bull derm is perfect uh, but this one's very close, but in the same that there's not a lot of accessibility about this one, there's not as much IMDb trivia, so we can get through this section pretty quick. William Peterson plays the main character, uh, declined the offer to star in Platoon in favor of this film, I believe for, uh, Behringer's role in yes. Platoon. I, and you know what, to, I was, I was, you know, Googling around today and looking at that, 
Um, he, he actually gave a little pushback. There was a, he gave an interview about five or six years ago. Someone was looking at this movie again and, and he talked about it some. He, he pushes back a little bit on the idea that he, he gave up Platoon to do this. He, he never got the formal offer for Platoon is what he said in his most recent interview about this. They were talking to him about it. Um, and then the long gone offer came and he said to the platoon guys, he says to Oliver Stone or whatever, okay, no, just stop. I don't want to go to Thailand or the Philippines or whatever for six months and go through basic training and not get paid for that part of it. And so he said no before they actually gave him the offer. Um, that might be splitting hairs. I have no idea. Peterson also later went on to uh, to not take the Ray Liotta role in Goodfellas. So this could just oh. be a question about his judgment on role picking. But I mean, he, things worked out for him in the long run with the CSI money. Oh yeah, yeah. He, I'm, I'm guessing he is worth more than Ray Liotta is <laughs> because and, of that. TV and Tom Berenger. And Tom Berenger. I, I would bet. But um, yeah, so that was all right. Uh, and he sounds like he enjoyed his experience on this movie. If you if you sort of like scrounge around for background information on this, like I have for the last few days, um, you know, he's a Chicago guy. He's really involved in the Chicago theater scene. That was his thing both before and after. He was like the CSI dude. He's involved in Steppenwolf Theater and all these other things. And, you know, a good number of the extras and minor roles on this, Joel Murray is a great example. Um, Bill Murray's little brother is in this movie. Um, are Chicago dudes that were just friends of William, William Peterson's. And he talks about how they just got in a car, drove from Chicago down to Florida where they filmed this and just had a hell of a time in, you know, September, October 1986 and then went home and drove all the way back and had a big party about it and everything. So I think he did all right choosing this role. Yeah, we were talking before we started recording that it would be really nice if he took that CSI money because that show's been in syndication forever and and grab the rights to this and put it out because it seems like he loves it um it's it just it's it's a real surprise that hbo hasn't reacquired it or some sort of it's it, it just really surprising um the only other pieces of imdb trivia um teller who famously never speaks in pen and teller performances he has a speaking role in the film and he was cast because of his resemblance to uh, henry gibson they play the father and son the owner tandem and then the home games were filmed at plant field at the university of tampa and that's it. That's all, it's all the IMDb trivia we've got for this one. Yeah, I was able to find a little bit more of just random stuff. Oh, um, hit me with it. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, some, so um, people who might do spring training trips or things might know McKechnie Field. Uh, I think it has a different name now. But in Bradenton, Florida, where the Pittsburgh Pirates play their spring, field, uh, their spring training games, um, is McKechnie Field. It's an old, old, old ballpark. It's probably the oldest spring training ballpark that any team still plays spring training games in, although it's had a few rehabs and, and, and uh, upgrades over the years. Yeah, um, and their Florida State League team plays plays in there during the summer. Yeah, it, it looks a little nicer now, but uh, they used that for a couple of the road parks in this sort of, uh, they, they shot it kind of artfully to make it look like it was more than one park, but that's a great park. And uh, I, I, I recognized it because I've covered spring training several times and... Um, you know, you see it there. Um, so, so that was pretty fantastic. They're all over Tampa um, for that. Um, I, I mentioned the one period thing that sort of bugs me a little bit. There was uh, early in the game, early in the in the movie, they they're playing a road game. It's not the Dothan game. It's not where they're playing against the Dothan Cardinals, but it's one of those games. Um, they're very clearly playing at a park that looks like a 1980s park. Um, that's the only bit that where the mask slips a little bit on the period stuff. Um, 
everything else works fine. Uh, but uh, just, you know, the whole thing just works so great. It does. I mean, it's a, it's just an excellent baseball movie in an era where there were a lot of, you know, but in the, between 1980 and 2000, there were a lot, they put out a lot of bad baseball movies and this was a really good one. And it's just such a shame that it's, uh, that it's underseen. Let's jump into best scene. I'm going to throw out a couple nominees. If I miss anything, let me know. Um, Weeks's intro, right when he knocks on Stud's door, meets a very naked Virginia Madsen. Oh, yes. Um, you know, into that, kind of hitting him grounders, negotiating with the owner to to give him a deal. It kind of gives you, it's a really good, like, lay of the land. It gives you very, a lot of insight into how naive Weeks is, how it, it just gives you a lot of insight into Stud's character, into Cantrell's character, and just kind of what this movie is going to be like, what this team's going to be like. It's a little rinky dink, you know, that I really enjoy that. Um, the first game, there's obviously a lot of the games are going to be going to be my first scene nominees when, uh, when Cantrell does the, the how's your sister thing when he's hitting, which is like, you know, you can see that kind of that in, uh, it, it remind that reminded me of, of, uh, major league, when uh, oh, when, yeah. Bar- when Barringer ha- or uh, Clue Haywood, how's my kids and your wife, or how's my wife and your kids, or whatever, uh-huh. or something. One no, of those. How's things, your wife I, and my kids? Your wife and my kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when they uh, when they discover Joe Brown and then they're negotiating and they, hey, you speak Spanish, Brown, and then he gives them the the contract. Um, weeks asking Cantrell about women uh, in oh, the dugout. Yeah. That the the scene at the dugout steps has its problematic points which you know we'll we'll touch on um the peaches retirement speech when he when he says that oh. the ted williams story was faked and then the line that he's gonna go and just walk around the ballpark a little bit like that cuts to my soul and it's one of the it just i i thought that in a in a movie that is not too serious i thought that was just a really beautiful scene um the winning streak montage love a good montage when it's properly done and then um, Joe and Stud talking in the bar all the way into the final game. Did I miss any of your favorites? God, I think you might have gotten most of them. I, I will say that, you know, when I when I we talked about what we would talk about on this show, um, my favorite scene as far as just dramatic and as far as, you know, cinematic or whatever, I think the whole Peaches talking to Stud thing. So, you know, Peaches, for anyone who hasn't seen this movie yet, you know, Peaches is... He's the catcher for uh, the Tampico Stogies. He's a veteran. He's an older guy. He's balling the whole deal. Um, and his whole thing is, you know, he had a he had a brief cup of coffee in the major leagues. Um, every you know minor league movie has this guy, right? He's I was there. I was in the show for a minute, and he has this story about how that time I struck out Ted Williams in spring training or whatever. And um, you know, he gets cut because Joe Brown, the, this amazing slugger falls into Stud Cantrell's lap, um, and he has this whole wonderful scene. This movie, this scene should not have existed in this movie, right? If you're making a movie now, you don't care about Peaches, um, this gets cut. I, I'm guessing this get, this scene gets cut from most movies because... Yeah, they're saying, oh, it's a drag, we don't want to see this. Yeah, this, And this it's is, really the most beautiful part of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's a complete downer of a scene about a character that doesn't have any real role in this whole narrative arc. Um, but it's, it's a gorgeous scene about this guy. And, and so that's the thing. We, we go back into what, are, what makes a good sports movie. It's not about who wins the big game. It's never about that. I mean, outside of a Rocky movie, it's never about who wins the big contest or the game. Um, 
it, it's about this milieu in the minor leagues, and you see Bull Durham does a wonderful job with it. This movie does an amazing job with it. Of these are guys either at the beginning or the end of their story, and nothing in between. Jamie Don Weeks is at the beginning of his story. This guy, you know, probably hits the big leagues sometime in the 60s as a slick fielding second baseman. Um, but here he's he's just this like wet behind the ears, nothing guy who's getting his first crack. Everyone else in this movie, Stug Cantrell, Peaches, whatever, are at the end of their rope and they're trying to figure out what their lives are without baseball. And there's this just gorgeous scene between Stud, who is a year probably at most away from having to figure out what his life is about without baseball, and Peaches, who has to figure it out right now. I'm getting cut because there's a better player here, and now I need to figure out what my life is. And he gives this wonderful speech about how I didn't really strike out Ted Williams, and I'm not going to go to this party. I'm going to walk around the ballpark one more time, and it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And this, this actor who did this is a guy named Arthur Rosenberg, who you've not seen in anything. He had, like, you know... He had a guest spot in a Seinfeld episode. He was in the movie Footloose. He was in, you know, 17 different bad 80s TV shows. But he just nails it in the scene that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie and shouldn't exist, but goddammit, it exists, and I am so happy it did. I ever tell you about the time I struck out Ted Williams? <laughs> yeah, about 900 times. Tell me again. Well... It was a spring training back in 1946, exhibition game in Clearwater. Mm -hmm. I started pitching for the Browns. Kind of a last chance, you might say, because everybody was back from the war by then. Hell started to lie. I've been telling for 10 years. I never struck out Ted Williams. Hell, I never... I never even faced him. Hey, come on. Chew me, go over to the bar, get stinking drunk. What do you say? Piss on Ted Williams. Yeah. Walk on over to the ballpark. Walk around once or twice. I know it's it's beautiful. It, one of the uh, one of the best lines in, in Moneyball is when the scout is talking to young Billy Bean. He says the thing about I, I don't know verbatim, but we're all told at some point that we have to stop playing the, the child's game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it might happen when you're 18, it might happen when you're 40, but we're all told at some point. And that's that moment. And we're seeing a guy who is in his mid 30s being told that he can no longer. I mean, he is playing at the bottom rungs of, of minor league baseball. He's making no money. And he's being told that he his time in the game is done. And that's really that's really tough. I mean, he says he's going to go walk in the ballpark. And this is a guy in his mid-30s, and he's playing a kid's game. And it, it is just, and you're right, it, it shouldn't exist in this movie. And if this movie was made now, it probably wouldn't exist. And it's it's a scene that really... This movie sometimes needs to be brought down to reality a little bit because it does get a little out there at times. Like mm-hmm. it, sometimes it can't decide is is this kind of a a zany comedy or is this a drama or a dramedy? And this is something that kind of brings it down to earth a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a it's a good scene. I don't want to say it's my favorite. Like I'm not if this movie by some miracle came on TV, I'm not like oh I gotta you know I can't wait until the peaches scene. But it's a beautiful scene. Um, I. 
I love I, I enjoy the final game scene that's in Joe and Stud. Maybe just if you you separate them in the bar, kind of talking about that, kind of basically mm-hmm. living with their demons. I, I enjoy that. But th- this movie is filled with really good scenes. Yep, definitely, absolutely. Um, I, I will say that, yeah, you know, and I think you're right. I don't want to like get too far down the road of like you know writing a hagiography for this movie because it has flaws. I don't want to pretend it's like the best baseball movie that's ever existed. Um, and we can talk about some of the flaws here in a minute, but, um, uh, you know, some of the scenes that work really well just in themselves, um, you know, don't work really well when you think about the logic of it. Like when, you know, the whole Stud and Joe thing at the end when, um, you know, both of them have compromised their principles to, you know, maybe throw the final game and the whole deal, which, you know, I don't think we're giving anything away if anybody wants to seek, seek this movie out. We know how all these movies are going to go. Um, you know, I, I, I question sometimes the motivation between those guys there. I yeah, I have some questions for you about that. Yeah, and I still and I still don't understand the motivation of the owner of Dothan for wanting to win this podunk league class d minor league championship like so you know the whole final you know fourth of the movie turns on we need stud cantrell to to throw the pennant and uh you know not not win but they've never they never explained ever why it was so important for these obviously very wealthy owners of the rival team in this shit minor league uh you know world why they needed to win that meaningless pennant in 1957 i don't i don't get it but that was like they needed to do that so okay that's fine so i yeah i have that as my as my least authentic let's let's do that and then uh let's talk about the least authentic real quick that is mine uh how much does the greedy owner really carry care about the gcl pennant they're not making any they're making very little money off this team uh, saying that we need you to throw the lowest level of the minor league pennant is they could have come up with something better to make that matter. You I know think. what? Here's, here's the thing. So we talked about how this is very similar to Bull Durham, and it is. Oh, my God, it is. If you watch this and you've seen Bull Durham 27 times, like every good American should have, um, you'll be like, wow, that's just like Bull Durham. And this movie and came like, out. Hey, of, wait a minute. It came out a year before. And I, I will do the aside right now. Um so Virginia Madsen, who plays Dixie Lee Box, who is amazing in this movie, um, she gave an interview a few years ago where she said that Ron Shelton, the writer of Bull Durham and the director, well, was he the director? Yeah, I think it was the director. Yeah, writer, written and directed by Ron Shelton. He Ron is Shelton. on. Uh, he is on the sports movie Mount Rushmore. Yeah, White right. Man he Can't did Jump White Men well. Can't Jump. He did. He did Bull Durham. He wrote some other things. Um, Ron Shelton is amazing, and and he did Bull Durham. But Virginia Madsen tells a story that Ron Shelton was at the premiere of Long Gone. Um, and this was again, you know, more than a year before Bull Durham came out and he was writing furious notes. And then she said several years later, she met him again at another Hollywood thing. And he admitted that he had totally stolen everything from Long Gone and put it in Bull Durham. Now, Ron Shelton completely denies this. I tend to think Ron Shelton's right on this. Um, you know, cause he, he had to have written most of Bull Durham well before Long Gone came out, even though the movie came out before, um, but there are definite definite parallels between these two things. But the one thing that I think Bull Durham does better than Long Gone is you have the same general storyline of the aging, um, wise, wizened, 
uh, you know, star. You have uh, you have Crash Davis and you have Stud Kentrell. Both of them are near the end of their line, but they're both still really, really good baseball players and really wise men. And, uh, you know, they've seen some things and they've got young guys under their wing and they've got a woman on the side that is trying to show them a bigger, better world than they've known. I mean, that's the huge parallels there. Bull Durham does a better job because it doesn't have a big game. There's really not a big game at the end of Bull Durham. Bull Durham, the season just ends as all seasons do. And and Crash Davis is left to figure out what's next. That's that's natural. That's a real. I, I that hits you even if you watch it again, even if you've seen the movie fifty times, you know that Crash Davis is looking at the end of September and thinking, now what do I do? Well, that's kind of the reality of minor league baseball. So both these movies do the job of minor league baseball of making you care about the guys themselves, about the team, mm-hmm. but. Bull Durham realizes that just kind of like minor league baseball, you really don't give a shit if the team wins. Right. You're you're concerned with the the guys and their personal fortunes, which is kind of like minor league baseball. No one is like, I'm not going to die if the San Antonio Missions don't win the Pacific Coast League every year. Exactly. My uh, my local team. So. It, oh geez, so, I didn't even yeah. know you're in San Antonio. I yeah, I I've been to a bunch of missions games. By the way, it's a fantastic experience. But anyway, <laughs> we, we we need a new park though. <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. Well, when I went there, they were still a uh, lower minor league team. They weren't a triple A team yet. But um, my my wife is from San Antonio, so I I met her when she was down there a lot, and we would hang out at missions games. So that's fun. Anyway, yeah, but uh, yeah, you know, and you care ball, about ball, the players. Ballapino, 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 and the the taco. I can't remember the tacos. Name. The, uh, Henry the Puffy Taco. Henry, I can't remember. It might not be Henry. My kid, my kid loves the puffy taco. The puffy taco is great. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, but Bull, the, yeah, right. Bull Durham realizes you don't you don't need that game. Yeah, and, and so I don't know with with Long Gone. And again, I didn't read the book. Um, you know, now I want to. I didn't even know there was a book until pretty recently. It will um, be delivered to my house on November fifteenth, which well, you, is technically before this episode comes out. But well, you regardless. need to you need to let me know how the book goes because. Um, I feel like the big game that they had against Dauphin um, was a little artificial, right? So you had the whole stud gets this offer to, you know, go work in the Cardinals system, which is what he wants. Stud is from Missouri. Stud knows that the Cardinals promote from within. Stud had a chance to be Stan Musial before he got injured in at Guadalcanal. Um, so that all st- that stuff all resonates, and that's huge. But it then all gets put in the in the package of this big game that doesn't really exist in the minor leagues and doesn't exist in a movie setting, and as we saw in Bull Durham, doesn't have to exist. Um, so there's a lack of realism there, and I get that almost every sports movie needs to have the big game at the end, but it doesn't, right? Because Bull Durham showed us it doesn't. Um, so that's like maybe my biggest nitpick with this movie is that it didn't know where to go other than the big game yeah i agree i agree um let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll get to the most authentic big screen sports is brought to you by untuck it you know what else is brought to you by untuck it my family christmas pictures this year we had uh we did christmas pictures this past weekend and there was an obvious choice for what me and my son were going to be wearing to uh to show off in the christmas cards we obviously got some good nice little matching untuck it button downs they fit perfect didn't even have to worry about it just bought my size off the rack 
uh, fits me perfectly. I know exactly my untuck it fit. Love these shirts, they look great, and you need to be wearing untuck it too. In the past, you know, I was wearing, my button downs were either super baggy or billowy or they went too long, you know, halfway down my thighs. Untuck it fits perfect. Once you get that perfect untuck it fit, you can just buy it, just order it directly online perfect fit for you uh, they've got more than 50 fit combinations so they're gonna have something that's gonna fit you like a glove uh, they look great on tall guys short guys like me slim athletic guys you know bigger guys whatever you are untuck it's got a fit for you you can order online or you can check out one of their 80 brick and mortar stores if you live close to an untuck it highly recommend go in check out the shirts they got they all look great find that perfect fit they've definitely got it for you and after that just have those babies shipped out to you every single month you owe it to yourself to get a nice shirt to be wearing nice golf polos button downs anything else they sell i'm telling you it's the best or the only thing i'm asking for for christmas so whether you're shopping for the perfect holiday gift or just trying to craft a smart, relaxed style of your own, Untuck It's the way to go. Go to untuckit.com and use promo code BLUE for 20% off at checkout. That's U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T.com using promo code BLUE at checkout. Now back to Long Gone with Craig Calcaterra. All right, so the most authentic thing for this movie, I think we've touched on some stuff, but for you, what was what's just the single most authentic baseball wise thing of this movie? Um, you know, I'm gonna again, I'm gonna go back to the um, the scene where where Jamie Don Weeks comes and shows up at Stud's place and then has his tryout. Um, baseball movies are notorious for having terrible baseball action. Um, you know, we all talk about how Tim Robbins can't really pitch, but, you know. Threw out his arm in filming. Yeah, and he didn't look good doing it. Um, and, you know, it, it's really bad. But the whole scene where, um, where he's getting infield practice, I, and, you know, I went back 20 minutes before we got on this podcast. I went back to watch it again because I wanted to make sure. I watched the scene where where Stud is hitting fungos to Jamie Don Weeks in the, in, at second base, figuring out if he can handle the position. Um, I wanted to see if that was really Dermot Mulroney doing that, or if they had a, a you know a, a stunt double, if they you know they brought in Tommy Herr or somebody. I don't know who it would be, but um, to to handle second base, um, kind of hard to tell. I think he handled most of it. There were a few that were from far enough where you couldn't get dis, uh, you know uh, enough. Uh, uh, resolution on his face to see if it was really him doing it. But that was really good. That was good baseball. I mean, you don't see good baseball in movies very much. And and one thing that I will say that uh, uh, Martin Davidson, the, uh, the director of this movie, did was he limited the amount of baseball you actually see. You wouldn't know it if you watched it. It's a, it's a movie full of baseball action. Um but what he does is, in baseball scenes, he cuts away at these perfect moments, like the guy fields the ball and throws it, but he cuts away before you realize that the guy has no arm. Um, he shows Stug Cantrell winding up, but he doesn't show the entirety of the pitch. Um, he shows uh, Joe Lewis Brown swinging, but he doesn't show the exact contact. He only shows the result. Um, these are important things, because it is it just completely ruins the reality of a baseball movie when you see that these guys can't play baseball. And Davidson 
however he managed to do it, whether he knew it instinctively or whether he just did it on purpose, uh, you know, on accident. Um, the editing is so great to where it looks like these guys can play baseball. And so I loved that that happened because, you know, we've all seen movies where they can't play baseball very well. Charlie Sheen can pitch, but yeah. most, most actors can't. Yeah, and the opposite to that would be Freddie Prince Jr. Yeah, oh, who you uh, see a lot of the results of his his pitches in summer catch. I always say with this podcast, always, always, always cast athletes. But you can't always have the movie. You can't always have a movie like Blue Chips when you have Shaq and Penny or two of the greatest athletes of all time and just watch them play basketball, which right. is sick. But you can't. You just you can't always have that. But when you don't, when you don't have a group of athletes and you have a group of actors with varying levels of athletic ability, the way to do it is how they did in this movie. That is up close shots, uh, quick cuts. And, you know, just just like you said, they they do it in a, like, remember, the Titans is really good about that, has a mm-hmm. lot of just up close football shots, um, you know, quick passes, things like that. And yeah, this movie does a good job of that. And you can tell that Peterson was probably athletic in his youth, had probably played baseball. Like, I thought his delivery looked good, but they didn't ever show, the, the, like you said, they didn't ever show the ball leaving his hand or the ball heading to the to right. home. Right, like so, his, his his motion was great, but he probably could only throw 50 miles per hour. Yeah, and, everything and was good enough. They did a good job. They, 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 I will say that there was one mistake. Um, the Dothan pitcher, who he completely keeps messing with over, you know, messing with his sister. I forget the guy's name. Um, you know, the guy early who punches him out and then who has the final pitch when he when he beans Cantrell at the end. They mm-hmm. show too many of his pitches. His, his, his motion is okay, but he's obviously throwing like 47 miles per hour. Um, but that's the only real real problem there. Well, and I've, I've never come up with a name for this scale, but there's like a sliding scale of declining, like of how athletic performance needs to be. Like if you're setting a baseball movie in 2019, a professional baseball movie, all these guys need to look really good. They need to look like they're in great shape. They all just need to look athletic. And I think everything, just the farther back in time you get, the less athletic guys have to look. Yeah. I think like the less like I like you I talk about remember the Titans like 70s high school football doesn't have to look to the same level of like NFL football would in a movie made in the 2000s. Right. So right. It, there's a different level of athleticism you expect. So this movie benefits from that as well. But yeah, it's shot really well. Um, it just the baseball never takes you out of it. You watch a movie like Summer Catch Fred every time Freddie Prince Jr. pitches, it takes you out of it. You're like, come on. Come right. on, it, dude. It doesn't same need with, to tr- carry same with trouble with the curve. It, it doesn't need to carry it. That's the thing. It, again, going back to my whole thing about sports movies need to be about things other than sports. You don't need sports to carry your movie. I mean, if I want to watch great athletic activity, I'll watch a game. Um, I just need it to not take me out of it. And this movie does a you know a wonderful job. Long Gone does a great job of not taking you out of it. Absolutely. What else for you? What else did this movie do well? I, I think there's a lot, but what else worked for you in this movie? I, actually, this, I have. But actually, I have a question for you. Sure. Before that, which marriage lasts longer, Dixie <laughs> and Stud or Esther and Jamie? Dixie and Stud last longer. Um, I think. I think that's absolutely true. Esther and Jamie. So here's what happens with Esther and Jamie. They got married. That was an afterthought, by the way. So you watch that whole thing. So, you know, Jamie Don Weeks, the young, you know, rookie phenom, whatever, you know, has this first sexual experience with the local girl whose parents are severe, knocks her up, of course. She gets sent off to her aunt in Mobile, Alabama, 
and uh, and he's like, oh, okay, peace out, whatever, and he's a piece of crap about that, and he doesn't seem to care because five minutes later he's giving like he's becoming the manager when Stud's not there. He's like acting like this swaggering, like amazing baseball guy. He like oversold that a little bit. Dumrundil, Moroni did. Um, you know, but I feel like they tacked that on. They were like, oh, wait a minute. He, we can't leave this movie ending with him just having, you know, abandoned the woman he knocked up. Uh, so he has that throwaway line that I think they did in pickups, like, well after the production was over. I'm getting on a bus to Mobile, Alabama, because I'm going to go see that woman. Um, yeah, yeah, it he, definitely tested. Someone Someone in the test audience was like, uh, hey, we don't need him being a deadbeat dad. Right, exactly. Yeah, so like, you know, six months after production ended, they had him do that scene of, I'm going to get on a bus to go see that girl. So, no, that one ends because what happens is um, he he gets, his contract gets bought by the Yankees. And, you know, he, you know, the next year is playing in like Evansville, Indiana or something. And then by, you know, 19, this is 57, so what, by 1960, 61, uh, he's playing in the bigs, he has forgotten completely about Esther back in Alabama, and um, yeah, I think that one ends, but uh, Stud, of course, is going to get blackballed from baseball because he didn't throw the game he was supposed to throw. (laughs) Um, He also realizes, oh wait, I'm almost 40, and prime time, early 20s, Virginia Madsen is so into me that she is like giving up her life for me. I am never going to do better than this in my life. And uh, he's going to go take a coaching job somewhere and she's going to be with him and they're going to be together forever. Yeah, they're going to fight all the time, but they're never going to leave each other. They're going to fight constantly. I I don't want to get too deep into it because like at some point you're getting kind of like your, your, your armchair analyzing a fictional character. But um, I never did really buy what she was into stud for. I mean, I know, yeah, right. So it, the, it comes off as straight up daddy issues. Oh, it's oh, it's. 100%. We're, we're kind of getting into what didn't work, but there's this movie didn't handle relationships with women entirely well. Which, like for sports movies in general, <laughs> yeah, sports movies in general didn't always have the healthiest relationships with women, but this one, uh, no, it was just, it was definitely. I had a I had a drunken hookup with this guy. And then later, and then so that's all that happens. She has the drunken hookup with the guy, and she leaves. And then she comes back and decides, I'm going to marry you. You're going to be my man. And then there's like one scene where she says, my dad abandoned me when I was 13 or whatever. And um, I have always been looking for a guy like that. And then that, and then I, you know, and then she says, I literally hooked up with over 100 dudes. She says like 104 or 114. I forget the number. But like really I, tough. Yeah, it's really like, tough. It's like I hooked up with 114 dudes randomly, and then I met you, and you smelled like cigars and and whiskey or something, and that reminded me of my dad. So now I decided I'm going to be with you. I feel like you could probably develop that female character a little bit better than than they did um at so, some point someone should have suggested a rewrite of, of dixie lee box if that happens today if this movie comes out today there's no way that comes out but yeah it totally turns out to be uh uh you know girl with daddy issues um who they're going to i'm just going to portray as completely loose and, and whatever until i meet this arguably horrible dude um, <laughs> but and, we can we can drive this into something that worked because Virginia Madsen was throwing 103 in this movie. 
Oh, she's she, so good. She was so amazing. If if there was an actress who did not have her chops that was handed this role, it would have come off pathetic. Oh, it, yeah. It would have been would real have bad. Been, it would have been bad. She would have been victim-y. She would have been weak or whatever. But Virginia Madsen completely nails this role. Like, she's steely. She's, like, she's funny. She's She's got everything going for her in this. Um, she's better than the material she was given, I will say. And, like, the whole last third of the movie, all she is given is... I'm behind the the screen cheering for the team that they totally did completely divorce from the game action. Um, but no, she did a really good job with this and she matched. So Peterson, my, my one criticism I have of Peterson is that there are times that I feel like he didn't have a whole handle on his character because they play him vulnerable and they play him knowing that he's at the end of his road and, and you know, what's next for him. So he does a good job with that. But other times that you feel like they filmed it earlier in the, in the whole thing, he plays the whole bravado thing up, which we, we learn over the course of the movie is kind of false bravado. But in the moment, he's, he's owning it a little bit too much. So there's like this very intense uh, William Peterson stuff going on, but she matches it. She does a really good job of that. And um, Yeah, they go toe-to-toe really well. Yeah, um, you're right in that Peterson, the character at times is uneven, but they pretty much put the entirety of this movie on his shoulders and on his charisma to carry. And he does do that. I, oh, I, absolutely. I, re- I really enjoy William Peterson. He is he is kind of like he's kind of like the anti not the anti Crash Davis. They're similar, but they're they're similar, but different. Crash Davis, a little more reserved, a little more like he picks his punches like uh, Stud Cantrell is very all out there. Yeah, well, so, you know, Crash Davis, Kevin Costner, shows that he's not wounded. Man, that's probably too strong. But he, he he's chastened, right? He knows where he is. Crash Very Davis, cerebral. Yeah, he's cerebral, and he also knows that he's at the end of his line. Um, there are times when you, when you watch Stud Cantrell and you think, well, maybe he thinks he's still you know the cock of the walk and then the other times where like he knows he's not i i chalk that up to writing more than i chalk that up to to william peterson's performance i think he does a great job with whatever he's given um but i think they they might have could have smoothed it out a little bit more about what his motivation was and then that goes back into the whole you know the end third where where the plot point is you know he's offered a plum job to throw the game um, and if he throws the game, he gets the plum job. They didn't really lay the groundwork for the idea that he might have even been amenable to that. Um, they I, didn't make it. They didn't make it to where you even felt like it mattered that much. He had that bet going with the uh, to oh, win yeah. the league. They had that bet going, which is kind of like Major League. Mm-hmm. Um, again, another like shades of Major League. But other than that, you didn't really get that the team, you know, cared too much about winning. It was just, it, it was, again, it didn't have to. So we kind of keep coming back to that. They didn't have to to win. But, uh, yeah, Cantrell was was a good character. Very, even in his worst moments, which we'll get into, still, like, very, very likable. Um, I liked Peterson in the role. I also love the name Tampico Stogies, and I admittedly have Googled to see if I could get a hat or a jersey. Oh, not so not in the cards. I had this. Um, I was really into sim baseball, like computer sim baseball, for many years. And in the eighties, late eighties into the nineties, um, there was a game company. It was a Lance Hafner Games. People might know what that is. I don't know. They're, they did some sim football, some sim baseball. 
um, you know, for your for your IBM 386 computer or whatever, and uh, you can make your own team. It was like you know proto simulation baseball, but you can make your own team. You can put your own stats in. You can run 27 seasons of a league or whatever. And every single year, my team was the Tampico Stogies because that sounded so good. That's it was, amazing. It was so great. It just it just works so great. And I guess in the book, from what I can tell, in the book, the team has a completely different name. And they uh, they changed it for the movie because they were going to film up in the Panhandle of Florida, and they uh, they couldn't find good sites in the Panhandle or in Southern Alabama, so they moved down to the Tampa area and they filmed in like Ybor City, and they found all these like great old signs about uh, cigar companies and things like that. And so the production company that did the movie just decided we're going to call them the Stogies and we're going to have all this kind of iconography from you know the 1950s cigar trade. So it worked out really well. In the book, they were uh, the Oilers. But if uh, if anyone who's listening to this, throwing out a real Hail Mary, if anyone who's listening to this is into uh, MLB The Show mods, please make a uh, Tampico Stogies team. <laughs> I would love that very much. What else uh, worked for you about this movie? Uh, well, I think I mentioned production values. Uh, very rare in the late 80s where you got good production values like this. Um, I uh, I think, you know, I'm going to go into it again. Um, uh, Gibson and Teller as the, the supporting role. They were the owner of the team. Henry Gibson. Um, you know, So my, my touchstone for Henry Gibson as an actor, he's a guy that if you see, you, you, you've recognized him from something or another. The name might not mean anything to you. For me, he's the scary neighbor from the Burbs, and he is the priest who doesn't speak from Wedding Crashers. Which that, are two yeah. films like 15 years apart at least. Those are great. And I will even go maybe more than 15 years before that. He was in The Long Goodbye, which was the Robert Altman version of the Raymond Chandler, uh, uh, you know, uh, detective novel, uh, Sam uh, Philip Marlowe detective novel starring Elliot Gould in the early 70s. He, he made this sort of revisionist neo-noir movie called The Long Goodbye based on the Raymond Chandler book. And uh, Gibson played a serious role as a uh, sort of a, a quack psychiatrist who was uh, sort of a scam artist and whatever. And I, so that was the first thing I ever saw him in. Um, and so Teller and him, he, Teller, uh, Teller plays Gibson's son as the, the co-owners of the team. And it's, it's mostly comic relief, but there's a bit of sinister um, there, there's a sinister aspect to their thing, right? They own the team. They're cheap. Um, you can, they know nothing about baseball, but they like owning a baseball team. And there's even a line at the end of the movie about our, uh, you know, we, we're sports moguls. And if this doesn't work out, we can't be sports moguls anymore. It's, it's cute as hell that there are these couple department store owners that want to be sports moguls. And it's a father and son. And Teller is like the sniveling little, you know, Southern guy who whispers in his daddy's ear and his dad just sort of responds you know, repeats everything he says. Don't you think Junior and me want to win that pennant as much as you do, goddammit? Yeah. So what if I change my mind and play? <laughs> Tell him he can't do that, Daddy. <laughs> he don't understand. Tell him Smart owns us. Tell him, Daddy. Tell him. Jesus Christ, get a hold of yourself, Junior. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Smythe owns the mortgage on the Tampico Stokies. Yeah. If you go and play, well, Junior, maybe we can't be sports moguls no more. Why should I give a diddly shit about you? <laughs> Ask him if he gives a diddly shit about himself, Daddy. Tell him what they said they was going to do. What are you talking about, Junior? You fool. You go out there and play and you're going to be ruined. They'll get you. They said so. Yeah? How? 
Hal, they'll go to the commissioner of baseball with all that stuff they have on you. That's how. If you show up tomorrow and try to win, you not only don't get the Dothan job, you'll be banned from baseball for the rest of your natural life. Right, Daddy? Right. They're just amazing in this. They, they yeah, make it. The, they set it's the It's like scene. the fun little duo. Mm-hmm. It's like the less sinister version of like a Donald Sterling who just owned a team just to own a team, but it's like the very the very small scale and not quite as horrible a human as that. But they 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 play off each other very well. And you're right, it's the comic the comic relief. Like every time that Cantrell has to go negotiate with them for something, it's really funny. Oh, it's great, and it's like you know. So another movie they borrow from just a bit is The Natural, right? Like the plot at the end borrows from the natural are you going to mm-hmm. are you going to throw the game or whatever and in the natural you've got the sinister owner behind those venetian blinds in the in the dim room the judge or whatever his name is and um you know he he's he's definitely this imposingly sinister character and you have this sort of farcical echo of them in uh, in gibson and teller that uh, they just make it. And it, it is kind of funny because you know they get involved in the whole throwing the game thing too um in that, you know, they, they don't explain it very well, but it's like, oh, well, they, you know, those guys know about it too. And, and if you don't throw the game, they're not going to hire you anymore either. Um, but then, of course, they show up at the weddings during, you know, right before the credits at the end and, you know, everything's all good again. And, um, you, you like to think that the next season starts and they keep Stud on as the manager and pitcher and uh, they're just going to fight the league about uh, having him banned because of the Dothan guys, but I don't know. Yeah, it's funny that I kind of said earlier how the movie can go from kind of zany comedy to a little to to drama to more grounded. Like it has this comedic duo that that um, is just kind of kooky, but then it also deals with some real themes of segregation and racism. Like there's a there's a scene where the Ku Klux Klan stop their bus, yes, which is like it, like wow, this is in the same movie. Um, and, and dealing with that, did you notice that Joe Lewis Brown wore 42 or Jose Brown yes, wore 42? I did notice that it was very on the nose. Um, you know, so for those who haven't seen the movie, uh, this is obviously a very, very deep South minor league. It has not really been integrated yet, even though we are, you know, 10 years since Jackie Robinson debuted. Um, and so Joe Lewis Brown shows up and he plays because he can hit like a, like a hell of a guy. And, uh, they try to pass him off as Venezuelan, um, but there's huge racial tension involved in all of this. Um, and, of course, they give him the number 42, which at the time I'm guessing no one really guessed because we hadn't retired 42 across the leagues and people really talked about it yet. But, you know, those in the know watched. I think in 87 I do remember seeing it and thinking, oh, yeah, that's Jackie Robinson's number. Um, I, I, I go back and forth, and for like the last three days I've been thinking, what do I think about the whole subplot with – with Joe Lewis Brown and the racial stuff. And on one level, I'm like, well, of course you have to deal with that in this movie. They could have very, in the 80s especially, they could have very easily bypassed that and pretended that that, that whole part of things didn't exist. They could have made all these teams lily white, um, and they could have just made this this bit of nostalgia for the 50s without dealing with the unpleasant parts of it. So on one level, the fact that they didn't do that good i'm glad they didn't and i'm glad that they you know they had a black character and they they at least attempted to wrestle with the ideas of uh integrated baseball in uh you know 1950 south on the other hand a little bit broad brushed 
um, a little bit heavy-handed. Um, yeah. I don't I don't know that if this movie is made today that they handle it the same way. Um, the uh, the character who is like sort of like the clubhouse attendant coach guy, the older black character who you know he plays first base when Jamie Don Weeks is getting his workout or whatever. They sort of make him you know the term that you hear sometimes is the magical Negro, right? He's sort of the guy who is there and he his whole role is to just sort of nod approvingly when the white people do good things and then nod approvingly when the young black character does good things. There's a little something uncomfortable about all that in that he's almost a character that is created to tell the audience it's okay to feel all right about this uncomfortable thing. Yeah, um, and it's it's like at first they can't tell if the racism not not the racism but like the the issue of it and then bringing it up and having to change his name and stuff. It's like at first they can't tell if it's going to be like this comedic thing with him having to go Jose Brown and learning the learning from the other guy who speaks. Yeah, the no speaks, comprendo you know, thing. Yeah, no comprendo. But then, you know, then their bus stops in the middle of the night and there's a flaming cross in the clan. And it's like, oh, we just hit you over the face with this. Like, this is a real thing we're going to. You know, we're we're gonna have a, a really intense scene with this, which is a so little there's unsuspecting. One, there's one scene that feels very real, and that's the scene where after the game, when when he makes his first start and he hits a big home run and whatever, and he's in the locker room with his own team, and he starts to go to the shower, and they all like freak out and they don't want to be in the shower with Joe Lewis Brown, um, and there's tension there, and then you know he he resolves the tension in, in in a way of saying, well, I didn't want to shower with any of you guys anyway, and he leaves, and you can tell like there's this discomfort with their own team. That's the only scene where they have where the Tampico Stogies might have some discomfort with that. I feel like in a real in a real handling of this, that would be a much bigger part of it in that, you know, other than that scene, everybody loves him because he hits home runs, and then they go directly from the scene where no one wants to shower with him and they're all scared of him to we're all really willing to, to risk our lives against the Klan at this, you know, roadside thing um, for him. Um, you know, again... 1987, how well are they going to handle this? Not very well. Um, a little uneven, just a little. Yeah, I, I guess that's the way I would leave it. It's it's uneven. I don't know if it's completely earned. <laughs> um, but I, I will tip the hat at least for them attempting to deal with that because I can imagine a lot of movies not wanting to deal with that at all. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, before we get into what didn't work, how did you feel about the character progression of jamie weeks because he starts out as the super cliche innocent 50s kid oh gee golly gosh darn that kind of kid and then by the end and it very rapidly he turned there, there's little moments where you see him kind of turning into eight what stud was like as an 18 year old mm-hmm. and then at the end he is full-blown he's the manager he's savvy he cusses uh wh- what did you think about that i like that they did it um, as I like do that, I. I like that they gave him that progression. You know, was it handled perfectly? No, but again, you know, you're dealing with an under two hour HBO movie, so you know how how much time is going to be put script doctoring this thing. But I did like the fact that they didn't keep him as some wide eyed innocent for the entire movie. Um, you know, did he handle the whole thing with Esther and all that well? I you no. Know, um, I don't know that they wrote that very well, but um. You know, his progression into a guy who is an amazing ball player but doesn't have a place in the world, so he's, you know, wide-eyed and, and worried as a rookie, to at the end when, when Cantrell is sort of abandoning the team, he steps up. 
that sort of rung true for me. I mean, I, I'm, you know, he's like Alex Bregman, you know, right? He's like, yeah, he does have some Bregman, he, Bregman vibes. He's got some Bregman vibes. It's like this guy, you know, he's an amazing ball player. This, you know, no matter how he shouldn't be there or whatever, or how he had to prove himself, he knows he's an amazing ball player. And then over the course of the next two months or whatever, he proves it. I can see that, right? I, you know, there's this problem in sports movies, well, all movies, but sports movies especially, to where you sort of type these characters. You know, there's the cerebral guy, there's the old guy, there's the rookie, um, and the rookie always stays the rookie all the way till the end of the movie. But, like, in real life, the rookie doesn't stay the rookie. After he's, you know, proved himself a little bit, he becomes cocky because he's good. Jamie Don Weeks is the only guy on that entire team that is very likely to make the major leagues. And by, you know, what was that? That would have been the end of August or something. Mm-hmm. Um, August or September, early yeah, September. Right? Yeah, that guy knows. Next season, he's not going to be playing in the D-level, uh, you know, Gulf Coast League or whatever. He's probably going to be, you know, a double A or something somewhere. And uh, so I like that. I like that he did it. Um, so I, I love that... that progression. We can roll it in, though, to what didn't work. And I'm just going to say, like, the pregnancy subplot. I think they, I really think they could have either done it different or just done away with it. I don't think we needed the, the romantic plot that we had in the movie was Stud and Dixie. Mm -hmm. I don't think we needed the, the kind of really problematic pregnancy subplot. Yeah. I, it didn't need to be there. I think what happened was someone decided that this movie was about Stud, Joe and Jamie, and all three of them need to be compromised in some way and overcome it. But in reality, this is Stud's movie. You have his thing. I, I don't know that, you know, one, I don't even know that Joe needed to be involved in the whole throw the game plot. Um, yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah, so, you know, Joe Lewis Brown, the big the slugging catcher, you know, he's also bribed to uh, to throw the final game. But it's over, like, a car, which seemed weird. And, like, it was the, the stakes were way lower. Um but with they they needed to do it with with Jamie Don Weeks too. I don't think that needed to happen at all. Um, he could. Yeah, I mean, he, the thing about him was he's a young guy who's like kind of you said earlier. It's guys either right at the start of their careers or right at the end. This is a guy who's at the start of his career who's trying to learn if he's gonna make it as a professional baseball player. I think that's that was enough. So I mentioned Bull Durham earlier and about how they managed to pull off dramatic stakes and everything else without having a big game. Um, and so they, they gave the big game to stud here. They might not have needed to, but they did, and I get it, because that's where you go. They could have also pulled off Jamie's arc without having the pregnancy thing, because it's so cliche also, right? It's the, oh, I'm an innocent who is immediately thrust. Well, Bull, he, he, he's an innocent who's thrust into the world of baseball, and his entire arc could have been, I grew into confidence. And like that scene... Um, before the big game at the end when Stud's gone and Joe's gone and Jamie is the de facto manager and he's asking, who can catch? You're catching. Here's the lineup. I'm not batting second. I'm batting third now. And you're batting. You know, like, that could have been his huge dramatic moment of like the guy steps up. He had only took him three, four months or whatever on this team, but he stepped up and he grew. Um, that could have been the whole thing with him, but of course they had to throw this whole thing in. You know, he met the townie girl with the with the religious parents, and he knocked her up and whatever. Yeah, that scene would have had a much bigger payoff had the scene before he not have just essentially abandoned his pregnant girlfriend. Yeah, this, so you're kind of you're feeling a little weird about him when he does that. If it weren't for that, you'd be all in on him. 
And the pregnancy subplot also gives us uh, Cantrell's very uncomfortable rule on women only get pregnant if they want to, which if they made that in 2019 would probably not make the movie. Yeah, that goes away. Um, Yeah, his 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 sagacious sagacious uh, wisdom to Jamie Don Weeks about, you know, all women like to screw and you should do it too. That's just very cringeworthy. I will say that for a 1987 movie, it's probably less cringeworthy than could have been. But um, could have been way worse, yeah. Oh, it always could have been way worse back then. But yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. That was some bad. of Cantrell's rules are a little like the uh, he says, "Fuck him if he can't take a joke a lot." And that's hey, it, it never really applies either. So, yeah, like, never. It, it's no kind of like yeah, especially during the pregnancy. All, yeah, um, I, I have a question. I have a what didn't work question for you. Um, so Brown and Stud decide that they're going to make it to the game. It's the seventh inning. They decide that they're going to go. They then beat the shit out of the car, which, from my experience, gets you places faster, yes. and then take off running for the stadium. Yeah, well, they symbolically had to beat the shit out of the car because that was the symbol of Joe Louis Brown, you know, trading his integrity for something material. But yeah, it was stupid. Um, you know, it's the seventh inning. You you need to get to the game. Why are you doing this? Okay, fine. It, it makes you feel better. Um, also, I will say, in real life. If a couple of dudes who are like the two literally most important dudes to your team pieced out on the first seven innings of your game and then were like, ah, we're here to save the day, you don't invite them in. You already screwed us. We could have been winning this game if you didn't show up. Immediately the uh, we're here, we're going to play now thing, I don't think in real life would have worked very well because everyone knew what was going on. And uh, that was a little bit weird. And they and and so this this flows into a specific thing that didn't work and a general thing that didn't work for me. So the specific thing that didn't work was okay. As soon as Stud and Joe show up at the game, decide we're not going to throw the game. We're actually going to try. Amazingly, they both get immediate chances to shine to redeem themselves. Uh, Joe gets to throw out the base runner at third base from from the catching position. That oh now I'm helping the team. You know, Stud comes in and immediately gets to strike out somebody. He didn't even warm up. How does that happen? I have no idea. Um, it's the '50s. Arm care was the thing of the past, right? I mean, the, a these, thing of the future. Yeah, but these guys literally. Sh- I mean, they left at the seventh inning is when they're beating up the car, but they didn't really play until the top of the ninth, which. Are you kidding me? You, you've almost completely screwed this whole game, and then you come in to swoop in and save the day. That's bad. But it, it leads me to my broader what didn't work. And this is it's a nitpick. It doesn't matter that much for the movie. Um, and a lot of sports movies have the same problem in that, and it's bad for baseball. It works in basketball, works in football a little bit better. But in baseball, we all know a guy can go 0 for 4. A guy could have a week where he doesn't do anything, but he's a star for three weeks, and he's fine. Every single time there needs to be a point in the movie where someone steps up, they step up. Um, the first time that uh, Stud sends Joe Brown in to, uh, to pinch hit, he says, ah, huh, now watch this, because he knows he's going to hit a home run, and of course he hits a home run. Well, it doesn't happen in baseball. I mean, he could go like a week without hitting a home run and still be a star. And, uh, you know, there are a number of points in the movie where a thing needs to happen. A big home run needs to be hit. A big strikeout needs to happen. And all the characters are quite certain that by just playing that that will happen. I don't know how you get around that problem, but in baseball, you can't just pencil in a guy and say, oh, he's going to play now. Here goes the big home run, and we all know it's going to happen. Oh, there's the home run. That doesn't happen that way. Even the best hitters in low minor leagues are going to get out six out of ten times. Exactly, exactly. And I will say they threw in one nod to that um, 
right before the big game starts when Jamie is doing the manager thing, he's like, hey, we won a bunch of games when Stud and Joe went over for it. Like, I'm glad that he at least... That was one of my favorite lines. I'm glad you mentioned that. I love that line. I know, because it was the only time where they actually mentioned the rhythms of baseball very well. And so many baseball movies are terrible and that they, you know, they show the big guy coming up and he always hits the home run or something. Or or when he doesn't, it's because some horrible thing has happened to him and he's slumping. There's an in-between in baseball. In fact, all of baseball is the in-between. Um, so at least they nodded to it. But for dramatic purposes, they had to have when Stud came in, he strikes out the guy and hits the big home run. When Joe comes in, he hits the big home run. Um, you know, the movie can't be seven hours long. So I get it. Yeah, you're right, though. I, I, I'm, I can't believe uh, Stud's 39-year-old arm got hot that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> he, got, he got his eight pitches and he was, he was good to go. Um, was there anything else that didn't, didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of like, you know, it's kind of just like nitpicky stuff. Um, Dermot Moroni's accent wasn't great. Uh, I don't think he was at his peaks, his peak of acting at that point. No, it floated a little bit. In fact, I think he's played later roles where he was like a Southern guy and he's done way better with that. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't in his prime in baseball or in acting. No. Yeah, that's true. Um, Let's see. I I don't I don't have a ton of nitpicks for this. That's the thing. It's like for a 1987 TV movie, I really don't want to harp on it that much. It's it was really good. It was just really well done. It's it's just amazing. And again, I go back to production values. I go back to it's a lean movie as far as like it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it takes itself seriously in the right points. Um you know, I guess I would say, and I think we touched on this earlier, was, you know, the general motivation for that final act arc of you need to throw the game so Dothan can win the championship. I really don't understand why the guys who own Dothan care um, enough to about this, like, podunk league championship to where everything is on the line. That's um, the only red flag at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess they could add a scene where there was, like, the only thing, I'm watching it, I'm thinking the only thing that could explain this is gambling. You know, they, they've got a lot of money or something like that. But, you know, if you're, if you, if 20th Century Fox is putting out this movie for a wide cinematic release, maybe they have another round of rewrites, but it's an HBO movie and the top that they're going to expect is a Cable Ace Award. Hey, you don't do that rewrite. But, you know, that, that sort of bugs me. I'm like, no one should actually care about this big game. Yeah, but other than that, I mean, pretty... Pretty clean, besides some problematic stuff that would have been cleaned up in a 2019 rewrite. But it's, I mean, it's good. Uh, for best and worst on-screen athlete, they really only show you three guys consistently playing baseball. It's it's Peterson, Larry Riley, and, and Mulroney. And they're kind of like we said earlier, it's all like quick cuts. And like, I, I think Peterson looks like he played in his youth. I was reading, Peterson was a, uh, he had a football scholarship to the University of Idaho. Out of high school. so okay, Yeah, yeah. He looks like an athlete. Yeah, he, he does look like an athlete. And he looks like an aging athlete, which is good. Because it's like you need that late 30s guy. And, and he looks like an athlete. And then again, I can't decide, having watched it like three or four times now, who was doing the defense for Mulroney. Um, he seemed to have it pretty good. Like that that was some pretty good picking at second base in the, in the workout scene and a couple of times in the game. Um, that whole scene where uh, in his first game he makes the error and then uh, the guy's on first base and he's like, I'm coming down to second base. I'm going to make you bleed, rookie. You know, he's going to spike him or whatever. And he turns the double play. Um, There is obviously a bunch of cutting and editing going on there, but it looks good. Like the whole, you know, I step on the bag, do the jump throw thing. That looked pretty good. Like they do it way worse in a lot of movies that are way more recent than that one. 
So yeah, like we said be... earlier, the baseball action doesn't take away from the movie, which yeah. is the best you can ask. I don't think there's any we can play so best athlete or, or worst athlete. Like Larry Riley had the size you needed for Joe Brown. Right, yeah. They didn't ask him to do much other than take big swings and they showed the home runs with the cuts and everything. But he, he looked the part. Like he looked like a guy who could hit a ball 400 feet and that was good. Absolutely. Um, let's get into a this is going to be a tough category for this movie. The Lenny Harris pinch hitter award for best supporting character. Uh, we've got the the I did the the father son duos, both Henry Gibson and Teller is Hale and Hale Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of them as a duo. Uh, Dermot Mulroney is, is Jamie Weeks. I, I would I would put him as a supporting character in this movie. Yeah. And then this Dixie Lee Box, Virginia Madsen's Dixie Lee Box. If she's a supporting character, I feel like she's the pick because she is. On yeah, that's fire. the question: is if she's the supporting character because she could be a co lead. Um, her her role wasn't as big as say Susan Sarandon's in Bull Durham. Yeah, but she doesn't get like narration or anything. Right, right. It's not quite that big, but it's also a little bit bigger than a supporting character it felt like. So you know, I think she's definitely there. Was like, I mean, she was like like early 20s in this movie right i mean it, like yeah i think she was right around 20 right so there's a there's a definite confidence and determination in her where she's like you know you you have to play big in that part to stand up to stud who is written as a big character um and i think she does a fantastic job so if you count her as a supporting character i will definitely give it to her if you count her as a co-lead i'm gonna go back down to uh back down to uh teller and gibson yeah, I, I agree. I think they're the perfect, uh, perfect comic relief is the the oddball Southerner, rich Southerners. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, but a special, special honorable mention to the guy we mentioned earlier, Arthur Rosenberg is Peaches giving that that one. He really had one one scene to shine and he killed it. I am guessing. I mean, again, I just like briefly scrolled down his IMDb page and he's got like a zillion guest spots on you know shows like Hunter and whatever, all the shows I loved in the 80s. Um I'm going to guess that was probably his best dramatic scene in his entire career. Yeah, that was his peak. Um, let's go to the big chill. Every good sports movie has the, you know, the chill moment thing that makes a hair on the back of your neck stand up. You know, Roy Hobbs knocking out the lights, um, that sort of thing. This one, this movie, when it's when you're not so invested in the team winning, there's not a, as much of that. There's not a Roy Hobbs you know, knocking out the, knocking out the lights moment. Um, I had three that, that kind of got me. Um, or I had four, I had four. I had the peaches speech that we talked about Mm -hmm. Joe Brown's speech about being scared when he asked him, you know, I think stud asked him, are you scared? He talks about being born into poverty, having poor schooling. And then he ends with I'm going to go dance on home. That might not have been a chill moment. That was a very cool moment. Yep. Um, and then Joe and Stud's last meeting, uh, meeting before the last game, they're talking about being paid off. I don't know if that was much chill, but it was just an emotional moment. And then when the uh, the public address announcer says Joe Lewis Brown instead of Jose Brown. Yeah, that was huge, right? Because the entire movie, they're playing him off as being Venezuelan. And for the first time, they say he's from like Mississippi or wherever he was from. And his name is Joe, Joe Lewis Brown. That was huge. That was like a really big thing that you might not have noticed if you're just like casually watching the movie. Um, yeah, there weren't a ton of chill moments. I will say like your traditional chill moments, like one that I think of, and it's really minor. I don't even think it's chill. It's just like, oh, that was a nice little turn. Um, right at the end, you know, stud gets bean. Bases are loaded. You know, they're, they're, they're down. The, the game is tied at this point. Um, 
bottom of the ninth, bases are loaded, studs up to bat against a pitcher he can't hit against ever, which is the reason why he insults this pitcher, to get him out of the games all the time. Um, and he insults him one last time, and the pitcher gets so mad that he beans stud, hits him right in the head, and he knocks him out cold at home plate. And he has to go to first base to, uh, you know, for the Tampico Stogies to win, to force in the run on the hit-by-pitch. Um, takes him a minute. It's a little bit overwrought that everyone's out there, including someone from the stands. You know, Dixie Lee's out there, the whole deal. It gets crazy dramatic. Yeah, crazy dramatic. But he wakes up, and he's like, oh, you know, do you need a pinch runner stud? No, I'm doing this. And he goes down to first, and he staggers down to first base. And the whole thing is kind of dumb. Until the last four steps, he he break, he's barely walking down the base path, and then he breaks into a little trot right before he gets to first base. Puts his foot on first base, throws his hat up in the air, and the, and the Stogies win. There was something about that last little trot that I've always liked, um, and I re- that was another one that I like was shocked that I remembered it from when I watched it, you know, thirty two years ago. Um, because likely that's the last time that he is going to be safe on first. Right. It, he's probably never playing again. If if the the narrative sense of the movie makes you know any sense he's going to be banned from baseball for all sorts of nefarious reasons whatever this is his last moment it's not a huge home run it's not him sliding safe anywhere he's literally staggering down to first base which is appropriate for the character in a lot of ways and all he has to do is just freaking make it just just make it and the last few steps damn it he found his dignity he found something i'm gonna trot these last three steps i'm not just gonna stumble them and he does it throws the hat up in the air i like that scene yeah but the fact that he was unconscious 30 seconds before and not is then able realistic. to trot it should well it this movie should thank jerry Maguire for not being the most ridiculous scene after someone's knocked unconscious and then what they do after yeah in the in the uh cte awareness era in which we find ourselves that that scene is a bit of a problem yes yeah yeah but um i i would have big chill i'd have to go with the peaches speech i think we yeah. we sung it we we sung its praises earlier it's it's fantastic um question would this make if this was a, a true story would this make a good 30 for 30 i like the fact that it would completely go under the radar and no one would ever know about it yes um, bill bill simmons wouldn't know that this story ever existed there's something nice about that in fact if this story ever came out in real life, like if this happened, it would be because Jamie Don Weeks is 80 and he's telling someone about it. And no one knows if he's telling the truth. And you don't get an examination to it. You know, Joe, Joe Brown died in the 60s. Um, Stud Cantrell died in the 70s or the 80s. Um, Dixie Lee Box is not giving interviews because, you know, she's old and doesn't want to do it anymore. I don't know that this sees the light of day. Um, and, uh, the best you get is some random guy who, as a young dude, covered the Tampico Stogies in this little podunk Florida town and talks about it a little bit, but it's just like a signpost on the way to greater things. I, I don't think this ever is a 30 to 30 for 30. It might be kind of like an athletic story, like the best minor league pennant race you've never heard of or something. Yeah. Kind of like this movie is referred to as the best baseball movie you've never heard of. That would be appropriate. Yeah, it's- I do think this movie would make a really good uh, Netflix or HBO limited series. Not to not to pull too much, you mentioned Simmons, not to pull too much from the rewatchables where they have a, one of my favorite categories is would this make a good 10 episode Netflix series? But I think this would make a really good HBO limited series if they wanted to to reacquire that IP. Oh, absolutely. Because you could, you, well, 
most of the criticism the criticisms that we've had here are just because you know it was a two-hour movie they had to like make some choices um this would be an amazing movie to watch i mean sports are always hard when you do that kind of thing but you can just like live in this world because that's the thing that's the best about this movie and i'm not a i'm not a nostalgic guy like i don't think about you know living in the past very often but like they just created this wonderful 50s sort of baseball milieu and these rich characters that you could have just imagined having two or three episodes where they're just doing a side lark that has nothing to do with the big plot but it's just fun and good and that would be perfect for like an eight episode thing yeah and you think about what hbo could do with the 50s stuff with the their budget now and the baseball scenes and it's it almost makes my mouth water to think about it how incredible that could be oh completely and like one of the biggest problems we sort of recognized is you know how sort of heavy-handed the whole clan thing with with joe brown was i mean you could actually make that good yeah oh yeah i mean you could have you could have almost an entire episode kind of dedicated to that yeah you well you create a character on the stogies who is a big racist piece of crap who who would actually create internal tension that it's exact well on this subject how would you how would you have improved this movie (sighs) man um i think we kind of touched on a lot of it like we wouldn't have we wouldn't have done the big game at the end or we would have found a different way to get to that. Yeah, I don't want to hit that too hard, right? Because you, you, you take movies the way you find them, right? And this this movie was made, you know, 30-some years ago. And so it was a big game movie, and I'll, I'll give it what it is. I'm not going to try to rewrite it or whatever. Um, I, I don't have a lot that I would do to change it, you know, assuming that you're not just going to completely re-engineer the whole thing. Um, it's, the bar for baseball movies is pretty low. There are a lot of terrible baseball movies. I've got one thing that I would pull from Bull Durham. Yeah. And that is the, the radio announcer as that kind of serves as the narrator. Like Susan Sarandon serves as the narrator for the movie. I'm not sure this one needs that, but I would have liked the voice of the Stogies kind of narrating for us what's going on in the season. Cause I think that's like. I think that's an enjoyable part about Bull Durham is you get a sense of how the team's doing because, um, through that guy's voice. And he's got that great Southern voice and he's hitting, he's doing the, you know, hitting the pieces of wood together to signify a hit or whatever. And, you know, basically said, you know, basically the bulls are playing like shit. Only Crash Davis is standing out. And then he kind of narrates the, you know, because we'd have a better sense of how the team is going. Cause first it's the stogies aren't great. Then they get Joe Lewis Brown and okay, now they're good. I guess we've been playing good lately. And then it's like, oh, we got to play 700 ball to win. And you're, you're kind of, you, you don't get a good grasp of what's going on in the field as much. So, so I, I think that could have helped. I've never written a screenplay. I've never written a script, but I, I toy with it sometimes. And I talk to people who do. And so I've become fascinated in the last year or so about exposition and how you do exposition. It's amazingly hard to do good exposition, meaning having a character set the scene or having the audience know what's going on. And so many times, so think of a, think here's the worst exposition. And the minute I explain this, you'll, you'll recognize us in 10 movies you've seen. Two old friends get together in a movie and they haven't seen each other for years. And they'll say something like, do you remember the time where we went to the old dam and we had that case of beer? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you drank all the beer and then we did it. And then we took that car and then we, it's, no one talks like that. That doesn't happen. Yeah. 
because everybody knows what's going on. But you do this in bad movies because you have to expose this backstory to the audience because it's important for later. And there's very, very bad ways to do exposition, and there's very, very good ways to do exposition. And doing exposition in a good way is hard. And so the play-by-play guy is a good way to do it because his whole point is to tell you what's going on. And if you watch any sports movie going forward now, you'll realize, I mean, why is Kurt Gowdy in Summer Catch? Kurt Gowdy should not be doing the the Cape Cod League because he's a legend, but he's there because they needed exposition. They needed someone to explain what was going on. Why is Bob Euchre in Major League? They needed exposition. They needed someone. And they managed to turn Bob Euchre's exposition role into a hilarious role of its own. Yeah, sports have this built-in, you have this automatic narrator that you don't even have to force. Right, right. So in in, in uh, Long Gone, I, I was paying s- close attention to this because I want, because again, now I care about exposition so much because I toy with writing screenplays sometimes. And, uh, you know, they generally give it to Stud. Um, Stud has some lines, like, they, they get to, you know, they show up at the ballpark for the big game at the end, and immediately he's like, all right, guys, down, we're down one, we need one to tie and two to win. You know, like, he says that really quickly, as if, you know, and you might say that in a dugout, but the reason he says that is because the audience needs to know what's going on in the movie and needs to know that the two runs are the important runs. So, um... Are there better ways to do that than having studs say that? Yeah, probably. But it was okay. But they could have done it better. And maybe a play-by-play guy would have worked. Yeah, I just think it's when it's done well, like uh, Bob Euchre or whoever the guy is in Bull Durham, it works really well. And it's just kind of like a built-in crutch that's not forced. Right. And I think it could have used that. But overall, this movie, it, it really is a hidden gem. It's a shame that it's not... It's not more widely seen. This was one of my favorite episodes of Big Screen Sports to record. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time, for taking almost an hour and a half with me. <laughs> this has been awesome. Uh, where Tell the folks again, where can they uh, follow you on social media? Well, again, thanks for having me for so long. I'm sorry to talk your ear off about this stuff, but I talk all I, day. I kind of wanted to go for like two hours, so we might have to do <laughs> we might have to do another episode, just longer gone or something. <laughs> Uh, you can catch me at uh, NBCSports.com MLB. Uh, we talk about everything baseball there. And if you want to hear me rant about politics and my kids and everything else, uh, CraigCalcaterra.com. Well, Craig, thanks again for coming on. As always, if you enjoyed this episode of Big Screen Sports, please remember subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You know the drill. Rate, review, uh, episodes every Monday. Next week, we have Ricky Smith coming on to do a real debates on White Man Can't Jump. And so we will see you next Monday. Thanks. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website 
are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.